This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Thanks for tuning in. We're in Hebrews chapter 2. Previously, we had talked about Jesus' comparison to angels as it happens in Hebrews chapter 1 in the beginning of chapter 2. And what the writer is doing is establishing Jesus' identity as superior to that of angels and how God spoke to him and the prophecies concerning him. All of these things point to Jesus' identity as being divine, as being one with God, or as he says in verse 3, the very representation of God's nature. And now in chapter 2, as this discussion moves forward, he is, the writer is now going to turn his attention to Jesus' humanity, his humanity. If you look in verses 14 and 15, it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And so now the writer's point is Jesus became human. Yes, he was divine, but he was also man, and he was made in human likeness, Philippians 2, 7, to save us fully and completely. And Paul says that he has reconciled us in his fleshly body through death. And so all of these passages say, essentially, Jesus didn't just look like a man, or he wasn't just appearing or pretending to be a man, as is some thinking goes. But the Bible is saying, though, he was literally fully flesh and blood, human, the same as you and me and everyone else who's ever lived. He became a man in the fullest and most complete sense. He had a mind, he had a body, he had a will of his own, and he kept every aspect of his human being in perfect harmony with God's will. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and that allowed him to be a perfect, sinless sacrifice so that he could save us completely. As he says in John chapter 10 and verse 10, I have come that that they might have life and have it to the full. So in living a perfect life, he showed us how we can be godly men and women and bear the image of the Heavenly Father. And so this is what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand in the context of Hebrews chapter 2. Again, Jesus has been established as preeminent above all things, including angels. And some might still have the question, though, in his audience as they were being uh, tempted and and persuaded to go back to Judaism um, to say, yes, we can see that he is what prophecy says, but he became a man and then he died. How can that be? How can that mean that he is greater than angels who are immortal. And the Holy Spirit is answering the question by saying he had to be made like his brethren in all things. In verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And so the answer is essentially this was God's plan all along. And he had to be, to be perfectly sympathetic to those whom he would save. And it was all for our benefit. That's the main thrust here. And so again, thus far, the writer has primarily focused on the deity of Christ, but now he's addressing questions about Jesus' humanity, and he is going to prove again that this, even his humanity, testifies to his superiority over angels. Well, how can this be? Well, let's go back to verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 2. It says, He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. And so the Holy Spirit is not referring to a future reign of Christ, nor to heaven itself. He says the world to come. 
is what he means by that and what scripture, how scripture uses that is in the sense of world order or a new government. And this is what was prophesied in Isaiah. And this is how prophets use uh, this idea of new world uh, or new uh, creation even. So it's not talking about things being remade in a physical sense so that, you know, there's this, you know, a, a literal new new earth. Um, but it's talking about a world order. In Isaiah chapter 9, for example, in one of those prophecies in verses 6 and 7, it says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from the time, from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And prophecies like this cause the Jews to look for a uh, a literal, material, physical kingdom, but that it, Jesus revealed that his kingdom would be spiritual, that it would be in your midst, and that he would reign in people's hearts. And this would be this new creation, this new world order, right? Second Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? But it's a spiritual, it's a spiritual re- recreating. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual church, all of which has been brought about through Jesus and his sacrifice. And he has been given all authority in heaven and earth, as he himself says in Matthew 28 and verses 18 and 19, not angels. And so again, he has proven Superior, He is God's choice to be king of this new spiritual kingdom that he brought about in these last days that the Hebrew writer says uh, we, are, it, we are living in in Hebrews 1 and verse 2. And God has put all things in subjection to him, Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. Uh, but someone could ask, well, what does that, you know, why does, why does he say the world to come as if he's looking for a future tense if it's already here, if Jesus is currently reigning as king and he is God's choice and we're in a spiritual kingdom and he's reigning in people's hearts, then why does the Hebrew writer say the, the world to come? I think he's speaking in the prophetic perfect. In my opinion, the reason I believe that he is using this kind of phrasing is that he's speaking from an Old Testament predictive standpoint. And Paul does the same thing. If you read some of Paul's letters, and places in places like Colossians two seventeen, uh, two sixteen and seventeen, you you can see that. And even though verse seventeen, I'll just turn over there and read it um, real quick. Uh, so Colossians two sixteen and seventeen, as he's writing to the church there, he says, "No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ." So. If you look at verse 17, again, Paul is using that same kind of phrase of, uh, from an Old Testament standpoint of things that are to come and the substance belonging to Christ, that all the trappings of the Old Testament tabernacle system and uh, ceremonies and festivals and feast, feast days and uh, Sabbaths, those were shadows, verse 17, of what is to come. But verse 16 in the context shows that Paul is speaking about the present. He's speaking about the, the things to come are, are now. And so he's saying, therefore, no one is to be your judge in regard to food or drink in respect to festival, new moon, or, or Sabbath day. And so New Testament writers will use um, these kinds of uh, pre- predictive phrasings 
uh, even though that they even though they are talking about uh, the present, just as Paul does in Colossians two sixteen and seventeen. I believe the Hebrew writer is doing the same thing here, as he is establishing Jesus as superior uh, than all other heavenly beings because he is God, was God in the flesh, and he still reigns as God the Son. And so now he begins to quote Psalm chapter eight verses three through six. And Psalm eight is about uh, mankind. It's about the superiority of mankind and God's creation and how relatively small man is. And this was written by David, but it has messianic implications. In other words, it was pointing forward to to Jesus, and that's what the Hebrew writer was uh, is saying. And he is an inspired writer, so he understands this, and he's uh, he's really opening our minds to understand this psalm. So again, in the context of the psalm, David, originally he's marveling at man's disproportionate position before God. You know, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And so he, he saw how comparatively small man is compared to the rest of creation. And this caused him to marvel. It caused him to be thankful. You have made him a little lower than God. Your Bible might say a little lower than uh, the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and majesty. And you make him to rule over all the works of your hands. And you have put all things under his feet. And so he's uh, meditating on um, the majesty of the rest of God's creation. Yet God remembers man and exalts him above the rest. And so mankind has this high relation to the world, which is a foreshadowing of Jesus's humiliation and then subsequent supreme rule. His high relation to, to all things, that he would be preeminent. And throughout Scripture, we can read of God exalting the lowly um, and, and the humble to a high position. He, he follows this pattern to, to show his glory. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. 1 Samuel 2 and verse 8. Psalm 113 is a praise a psalm of praise to the Lord because he does exactly that. He he is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like our God enthroned on high who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and on the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. And so this is what First um, Samuel 2, Hannah in her, song, in her song is quoting. Or maybe the psalmist was quoting her. I don't. I don't know which way it goes. But they're both inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they're acknowledging this, this um, attribute, this character of God. How he he does, even though he's high and, and mighty, he he lifts up those who are in need. He lifts up those who humble himself before him. And over and over again, you find examples. Isaiah fourteen verses four through sixteen, and we won't go go to all that because it's well established in Scripture. First Corinthians one and two. Um, as Paul is applying that to the Christians there in that church, that not many of them were noble or wise or wealthy, uh, but God uh, chose them. And so he, this is just the pattern that he follows throughout all of Scripture. And he looks to the humble and contrite of heart. James 4.10, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So all of that to say, in, in connection with Psalm 8, that it shouldn't come as any surprise that he would follow that same pattern with his own son, with his Messiah, the one who would be king over his people. And no angel 
has ever been given that same kind of authority that's described in Psalm 8 or Psalm 110. All things in subjection under your feet, and I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so the Son of Man is shown by Scripture to be a, a particular, it can, it can apply certainly to people in general, but it, specifically in this case, it is applied to the Son of God. It's a, it's a messianic title because he would be human. And this, the, the Son of Man, uh, shown by Scripture, is, holds this position far above everything, that he would be king. All things would be subject to him. Uh, including death, and uh, someone might say, "Well, people still die, and that's that's true." But death, not in the final sense uh, mentioned in Scripture, is is going to be permanent. And this is what Paul is addressing in First Corinthians fifteen because of the the resurrection. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Paul says of Jesus, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he who is accepted, who put all things in subjection to him. And so he's talking about the, the co-eternal nature of the, the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the Son is preeminent and he's reigning. And all his enemies are going to be destroyed. And the last one will be death. He overcame death itself and he promises his people that there's going to be a resurrection. All people are going to be raised from the dead when he returns. And we want to be on the right side of that resurrection. We want to be welcomed into his heavenly kingdom. And so uh, Paul is saying that we're going to be raised never, everybody's going to be raised never to die again in a physical sense, but there are only one of two places which we can go after we have been raised from the dead, either to suffer eternally or to enter into uh, heaven and reign with Jesus Christ. So Jesus has been glorified. He's been exalted as our forerunner because he he lived and and uh, he died for us. He lived and died as a man. Hebrews two and verse nine. If you go back over there, he's again he was made like us in all things. Uh, we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so the Hebrews didn't seem to struggle with the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was killed, that he was raised from the dead, but they were having doubts about what happened to Jesus after he was raised because that's the position he has, that's been the primary focus since the beginning of the letter uh, so far and what he's doing and, and how he will be compared even throughout the, the rest when Jesus is compared and the next chapters to to Moses and then to Aaron and then the priesthood in general and then the sacrifices even that were offered versus his sacrifice of himself. So there was some I guess some questions about well what is if he is reigning now then why you know why don't we see him and why isn't there a physical kingdom? But the writer is proving that Jesus's death was necessary and his death itself proves his superiority and proves that he is God's chosen and king in his his resurrection. Acts 17 says that God furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And the proof of which Paul speaks is that God will judge the world through one man whom he has chosen. And so he's calling everyone everywhere to repent. And he's furnished proof of this fact by raising Jesus from the dead. 
Um, and the Hebrew writer isn't shying away from this this fact that Jesus lived and died as a man, and this was necessary. And he doubles down on it, in fact. He declares that it was fitting, in verse 10, that it was fitting or appropriate to make the pioneer or leader or captain of our faith complete by the suffering of death. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And that would include the and the terrible death that he died. So everything exists for and because of him, yet God deemed it necessary that he fully identify with humankind by becoming fully mortal and even suffering to the point of death. And he became a man to show other men the way to God, the author to become the author, pioneer, leader, captain of salvation. He is called the archegos. That's the word in the original language. And commentators will say that that was uh, applied to a person who would secure a, uh, a line. There's a certain name for this um, this line that I'm talking about. But from a, strand, a ship that was stranded on the rocks, there would be somebody who would take a line to shore, and that would be the, the, uh, the way then that all the others could be could follow and be rescued who were stranded. And so the Holy Spirit is giving us that picture of Jesus as the archegos, the pioneer, the leader. He's taking, he's showing us the way to shore. He's showing us the way to salvation and to be reconciled to God. And he's the only way. He established the line. He blazed the trail, if you want to put it that way, that all, so that all men could attain salvation through him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other. No one comes to the Father except through him. John 14, 16. Excuse me, John 14, 6. And so he did all of this for our sake. And even though he is God who became fully man and suffered death, and he is the sanctifier and we are the sanctified, verse 11, both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, which is the reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Think about that. He completely took on our humanity and he he knows more than any, better than anyone. Even beforehand, he took on our humanity for our sake, not for, not for his. Um, please don't misunderstand. Uh, but he was showing us how much he loved us. Romans five, verses eight through eleven. He was demonstrating his his love toward us while we were helpless, while we were sinners. And yet, for those who join him, who 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 follow the author, who follow the pioneer and the line that he set and are reconciled to God through his sacrifice, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. In other words, he's not ashamed to call them his own family. Those who are sanctified, those who are set apart, holy, dedicated to God for the purpose that he intends, he is not ashamed to call them my brothers and my sisters. He sees us that way. The creator of the the universe in Mark three thirty one through thirty five, there's a there's a um, a foreshadowing of this. I guess you could say his mother and his brothers arrived where he was teaching, standing outside. They said uh, they sent word to him and called to him. Uh, a crowd was sitting around him, and they said, "Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you." And Jesus answering them said, "Who are my mother and my brothers?" Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, "Behold, my mother and my brothers." For whoever does the will of God 
He is my brother and sister and mother. He is not ashamed to call his faithful ones brother or sister. And so that should cause us to ask ourselves the question, am I... Am I faithful? Am I doing the will, doing the will of God? Or and am I ashamed of Him? He's not ashamed of me, and I am I ashamed to stand up for Him when He is slandered, when He is accused. Jesus says, "Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in His glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." Luke nine twenty six. And so. The creator of all things claims ownership of his people. Do we do the same? He had to take on flesh and blood that he might save those who are flesh and blood. Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless whom had the power of death, that is the devil. And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So the Hebrew writer says that Jesus broke the power of the devil. How did Jesus ruin the power of the of the devil? So that's the idea. Your Bible might say he broke the power of the devil, uh, but the idea is of uh, destruction. He destroyed or ruined the power of the devil. How can that be? Well, the, the other scriptures connect the dots for us. So let me just uh, read a handful here, kind of in quick succession, so we can see this. So the, the devil in Scripture is called the tempter, right? I'm, when Paul says, I fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain, he's talking about the devil. And Jesus says in John eight forty four that to those people, he says, you are of the father, you're devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He's been a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. And so the devil tempts people to... Sin and the consequence of sin, all sin, is spiritual death. Romans six twenty three. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so James really puts it all together for us in James one thirteen through sixteen. He says, Let no one say then when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, he gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And so there's the the whole cycle. You have the tempter who influences circumstances and situations to tempt us, to tempt people to sin, and if we give in to our lust that has been excited uh, to do to, to go against God's will, it brings forth that sin and when it's accomplished, the Hebrew writer, excuse me, James says it brings forth death, just as Paul does. The wages of sin is death. And so this is how the devil had, had the, the power of, of death, in that he, he tempted folks to do these things that, that lead to death. But Jesus, in coming to earth and sacrificing himself, verse 9, tasted death for everyone. And thus provided the means to get rid of all that sin. And he ruined and destroyed the power of the devil. The only thing that the devil had over us to accuse us with. Jesus can take all of that away. And now the devil is ruined. He's, he's, he's made impotent and ineffective. 
And so we don't have to be slaves of fear because we are now sons of God. We are now his very his brethren of whom he is not ashamed, children of God. And this is what part of which Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus ultimately will bring our, our physical lives back, but he gives a spiritual life. He, he takes away the, the consequences of our sin. He takes away our sin and the, the, the spiritual death that it brings about. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50 that he says, Brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And he goes on to say that when Christ comes to receive his people to himself, that the, this perishable, are, you know, our, our mortal, mortal bodies will put on immortality. And then will come about the saying, notice verse 55, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He says the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus saves us spiritually, and in the end, if we are found faithful, he will save us physically as well, and he will give us immortality. Death will no longer be a thing. It will no longer exist. Revelation 21, there is no pain, there are no tears, there's no sadness, and there is no death. Because Jesus destroyed it he overcame the grave and he says that we will too so what a tremendous gift and blessing we have everything to look forward to if we are in christ jesus romans 8 1 there's no condemnation for those in christ jesus that means in fellowship with him on his terms he is a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to god to make propitiation for the sins of the people since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That's how the Hebrew writer ends this point, or at least how we have, uh, at least as, as the chapter and verses are marked, verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, that we have this advocate and intercessor who showed us humility and love on earth by coming and enduring far worse, not for his own sake, but for ours, so that we could be forgiven. And now, uh, the Hebrew writer says he's he's still working. He sympathizes with us perfectly. He is our high priest. Hebrews 7.25 says he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. So we still need an intercessor because people, Christians, still sin. And if we say that we don't, we're just deluding ourselves. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sins, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we still need him. We will always need him. We will have no hope without him. There are no spiritual blessings apart from Christ. There is no hope of heaven apart from Christ. There is no forgiveness apart from Christ. So thank God he came to save us. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.